joyous. It's a special time. And even though it's interesting, half of our church is gone, it's really a joy to have met so many guests. And you're truly welcome to our faith family. And we would encourage you to not leave too quickly, to hang around afterwards and get some tea or coffee and just meet some people. We'd love to get to know you because our goal is not to just be a crowd. Our goal is to be a faith family that is pursuing Christ, that has one passion, that is to know him and to make him known, to go forth and make disciples for the glory of Christ. And so as a faith family, we want to be just that, a family. And so it is a joy to have celebrated the birth of our Savior this week. Christmas Eve was a really special time in the Mafrock Hotel. I'm thankful for them allowing us to meet there on Tuesday evening. It was a time of celebrating and of praising God for sending His Son to save us. And throughout this month of December, we've been looking through Luke 1 and 2, and we'll continue that this morning. We've been looking at our preaching series called Changed at Christmas, how encountering the Savior changes everything, truly being changed this Christmas season. We've been talking about life, what we've been talking about really, if you boil down to it. Now, when I'm saying we're talking about life, I'm not talking about life the way Hollywood depicts it. I'm not talking about a movie, because if you watch movies, then you know that it begins with some kind of a problem that arises. But then magically, two hours later, everything is resolved. All the problems are gone, every relationship is reconciled, and everything ends happily ever after in the movie. And then two, well, if you watch Lord of the Rings, three hours later, then it's over and it's reconciled. But we know that real life is not like that. Life is nothing like a movie. Any attempts that we have to just fix ourselves or change ourselves, especially if we think that we can do it very quickly, we know won't work. That it has to be the power of God, it has to be the work of God through His Spirit that changes us, changes our hearts from the inside. So it has to be God's work to make deep and lasting changes inside of us. And I don't know about you, but I know my soul, and I doubt you're that different. There are times where your soul can feel like you're in a hot, dry, parched desert. And living in one, we understand this well, especially in the summer. In a hot desert where nothing can grow, and our souls at times can feel that way. And what we need most is for God to rain down on us. We need God's grace to reign and to soak us and to fill us and allow us to grow, to change us from the inside. And so when I talk about being changed at Christmas, I'm talking about your desires being changed. What motivates your heart being changed from deep within the kind of changes that God does that then is reflected and demonstrated in how we live and how we love others. And so today as we continue in Luke 2, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 40. We'll be looking at how the Savior creates faithful followers. So how the Savior himself, how Jesus creates faithful followers. So let's read Luke 2, verses 21 through 40. It'll be on the screens. At the end of eight days, when he was 
circumcised, he was called Jesus. Then him given by the angel before, he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who was first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and praying day and night. And coming up the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a truly beautiful text that describes what happened to baby Jesus when he was eight days old, went into the temple to have him circumcised. And then when 40 days old, so 33 days later, he went back to the temple and had these ceremonies that were performed. So this shows us what happens to Jesus when he was just a few weeks old after he was born. But it's far more than an account of what Jesus went through when he was a baby. This, this is God's word. It's his revelation. This is God speaking to us. And it, it shows us who God is. It, it reveals to us who we are. It reveals to us how we're to relate to God. And so this is, this is a beautiful text. And it describes how we can be changed so that we can then be faithful to our God. So if you are a follower of Jesus, then I know that you want to, that you truly desire to be faithful to God. The problem is that sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're not faithful to God because life can be challenging. And so sometimes we find ourselves not being very faithful to God. But the word here reveals how our hearts can be changed so that we can be consistently faithful to him. 
So here's the main idea from this text that we just read. Taking notes, the main idea is that focusing on God's faithfulness will produce faithfulness in your life. So this is what we're seeing here in Luke 2, 21 through 40. And so the main idea on the screen here that we'll look at in a second. Romel, if you don't mind. Oh, it's not on there? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. Don't blame Romel. Blame me. I didn't put it in there. But I'll, I'll say it again in case you, you missed it. Is that focusing on God's faithfulness will produce faithfulness in your life. And so here's the key here. Is do you want to be faithful to God? I would assume the answer is yes. You probably wouldn't be here if you didn't. If you want to be faithful to God, here's something that's going to sound weird or backwards to you, but if you want to be faithful to God, you need to stop focusing on you being faithful. Sounds kind of backwards, but I'm telling you, if you want to be faithful to God, then you need to stop focusing on you being faithful to God. So don't focus on your ability to be faithful to God. Don't focus on you if you want to be faithful to God. If you focus on you, you will fail. It says in John 15, verse 5, Jesus' words, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So he says, you want to bear fruit? You want to live a life that is faithful to God? He doesn't say, go be more faithful. He doesn't say that. He says, abide in me. Continue, remain, enjoy me, focus on a relationship with me. You abide in Jesus, and the result, the fruit, be faithful. You abide in Jesus first, focus on who God is and his faithfulness, and then the natural result will be the fruit of a faithful life. So if you focus on your abilities and what you think that you need to do for God, you're not going to accomplish very much. You will fail. You focus on him. So focusing on your abilities, no fruit, no faithfulness. You focus on Christ on his glory, abiding in him, enjoying Jesus, your heart will be changed, and the result will be faithfulness. So here's how this works. This is true of all of life, but primarily here are spiritual things. Whatever you're focusing on will dictate the direction of your life. So whatever has your gaze, whatever has your attention, whatever it is that you are focused on, and you're honed in on. Whatever you're focusing on will dictate the direction of your life. So your feet will always naturally follow where you're facing. So your feet will follow where you're facing. And so if you're facing this direction, and you want to go in this direction, but you're looking in the opposite direction, your feet can't go that way. Your feet are going to follow where you're facing. And so if you think of it in these terms, I think the best example that I could think of would be a bride. Because after all, we are the bride of Christ, and he is our groom. And so picture a bride on her wedding day. She's dressed up, 
in all of her splendor and beauty, her hair, her makeup, dress. It's just stunning. And the back doors to the church building open, and there she is in all her glory. And everyone is looking at the bride. But down the long aisle, there is someone waiting for her. Her groom is awaiting for her, and he loves her, and he wants her to come to him so that he can make promises to her, so that he can promise to keep her, to be faithful to her, to guard her, to cherish her for better or worse, in sickness or in death. And he's waiting. He's waiting for her. But she has to walk towards him. But what happens if the bride is to focus on her shoes or focus on her dress or she's focused on someone else that's in the room and she's not even looking at the groom and she's not going to walk toward him. The way that she's going to walk forward and she's going to reach her groom is if she looks to him, if she keeps her eyes focused on him. And if she does, if her eyes, if her gaze, if her attention is fixated on her groom, then she will naturally walk forward and walk towards her groom who loves her and who will sacrifice for her. And that's Jesus. Where is your gaze? What are you focused on? What are you looking to? Because what you're looking Two will dictate the direction of your life. Are you walking towards Jesus? Are you walking towards your groom who loves you and sacrificed for you and wants to cherish you and care for you? Are you looking to him and walking towards him or do you claim that you want to, but your focus is really on other things and you're too distracted and you find yourself not walking towards him? One way to reach him is to keep your eyes on him. Or are you struggling to walk towards Jesus? I'll phrase it this way with today's main idea. Are you finding yourself lacking in faithfulness to God? So do you find yourself making pretty consistent, foolish decisions? Just doing things that are just boneheaded. You're just hurting yourself. You're just not being very wise in life with decisions that you're making. Are you finding yourself with a lot of broken relationships? Are you, are you finding that you're struggling with people around you and you're finding yourself drifting away from God and doing things that are not pleasing to him? And you've kind of drifted, and you're thinking, man, the direction of my life is not where I want it to be. Well, I can tell you this. The reason is, is that you have lost your focus on the faithfulness of God. And so if you want to be faithful to God, you must focus on his faithfulness. And when you focus on him, your heart will be changed, and you will more naturally have faithfulness. So again, focusing on God's faithfulness, will produce faithfulness in your life. And in this story that we just read, there are three examples of people that were doing this, who were living this out. And they're focused on three of God's traits, of God's characteristics, or his attributes. And so they're focusing on God who was faithful, and in return, their hearts were changed, and they were faithful to God. And so the first 
traits that they're focused on was God's cleansing. So they focus on God's cleansing. We see this with Joseph and Mary when they took baby Jesus, eight days old, and then 40 days old to the temple. Now, they were following God's word as revealed in Genesis 17, in Leviticus 12, and Exodus 13, three passages in the Old Testament, the book of the law written by Moses that describes circumcision in Genesis 17. In Leviticus 12, the process of purification for a mother who gives birth. And then Exodus 13 describes how the firstborn son was set aside for God. And so we don't have time to go into the Old Testament tonight, this morning. But on your own time, if you want to read those, they're, they're really important texts. And we see here that Mary and Joseph are following God's word. They're being faithful, focused on God's cleansing. And that's the thrust of these passages in the Old Testament. The law was about how people could be made clean before God. And so we saw that in Luke 2, 21 through 24. It says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So they circumcised him when he was eight days old. That was a sign that was revealed again in Genesis 17. That was a sign that God gave to his people that was a physical sign, but pointed to a spiritual reality. So it was God's way of showing that his people are to be different, to be marked, to be set apart. And circumcision was a shadow that was pointing to the reality of Jesus on the cross. And so circumcision was meant to point to and to be fulfilled by Jesus. Where on the cross, his life, not just a body part, his entire life was cut off. He died. And blood was shed. Not just a little bit of blood at circumcision. His blood was shed on a cross so that God's people would be able to be in a relationship with God. And circumcision was a sign of being in relationship with God. So it all pointed to Jesus, a prophetic sign. And it says here in verse 22 that they came time for their purification. Now, the word purification means cleansing. So what you see here is they're focusing on God's ability to clean, to cleanse us from our sin. And what do they have to do? It says they had to kill a couple of birds, either two pigeons or turtle doves. You think, man, that's kind of weird. That's kind of archaic. Who does that? Like, why would you go kill two birds, and how does doing that clean anyone? That's just strange. Like, to our 21st century modern world, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Kind of strange. To be purified, you have to go and take these two birds. And it's funny, because I was working through the same text with my kids at breakfast yesterday morning, and my little girl, who's kind of queasy, She was, like, covering her ears. Like, she didn't want to hear her dad talking about killing two innocent birds in circumcision. They're like, ah, we're having breakfast. We'll talk about that at breakfast. It is. It's kind of strange. I'm the first to admit it's a little bit weird to talk about that. But there's a reason why. There's a reason why God revealed that there had to be a blood sacrifice for cleansing. It shows us two realities, two truths about who we are and who God is and why he required a blood sacrifice. One is that it shows God's absolute holiness. 
shows that God is holy. It shows that we as humans have sinned. But number two, it shows God's astonishing love. It shows his absolute holiness and his astonishing love, mercy and grace for you and me. And so as far as his being holy, it means that he is the ultimate just judge and he holds you and me accountable for our sin. And he reveals that the penalty for our sin against a holy God is death. And so what you see here is the firstborn son. Why is that mentioned here? Why is that so important? That's in Exodus 13. If you want to review that, we've been working through Exodus as a faith family. We'll pick, pick it up in January again. In Exodus 13, the context there was the firstborn son of the Egyptians were to die because they were holding God's people in slavery, violating God and offending him. But even the Israelites were also sinful. So even one of their firstborn sons would have to die because the Israelites were as sinful as the Egyptians were. And the firstborn son represented the family. All the family's hopes and dreams and aspirations and future all relied upon the firstborn son who would carry on the family name and inherit the land, which was everything to an ancient Near Eastern people. So the firstborn son represented your hopes and dreams and aspirations. And God said, you give it to me because this firstborn son represented the whole family. The family had sinned. So God says, now the firstborn son must die to pay off the sin debt to God. Now, this sounds really heavy, and it is. It points to God's holiness. Our sin matters. We take it so lightly, but God doesn't. It has capital offense, requires the penalty of death, and the firstborn son represented the family. And yet, as much as God's holiness is shown here, his love is shown, astonishing love, in that he would allow a lamb, or if you're very poor, like Mary and Joseph, a couple of birds, could die as a substitute in the place of the firstborn son. This shows God's mercy, that he wanted his children to live, not die, but there had to be a payment, and so he would allow a substitute animal to die in the place of the firstborn son. Who do you think this was pointing to in the ultimate sense? The firstborn, Jesus, who represents all of humanity, who died on the cross for you and for me as the ultimate substitute, as a sacrifice who endured our pain so our Shame and our guilt was nailed to the cross, transferred to Jesus. And God's overwhelming display of love here and that he would allow his son to sacrifice for us. And now our sin can be removed, taken away, because it was transferred to Jesus. And this ceremony of killing the two birds was pointing to the once-for-all sacrifice that the holy, blameless, sinless Jesus would accomplish. And so Jesus' parents here, earthly parents, were pointing to what he would do 33 years later on the cross. And so now we 
can be clean. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to picture a wolf, a really mean wolf that was attacking a flock of sheep. So every night, this sheep, bloodthirsty wolf kept attacking, and, and the shepherd was really frustrated losing his sheep. So he sets a trap, and he captures the wolf. Now, now the shepherd that caught this wolf has two options. He could kill the wolf, and that would basically end the problem, right? Well, not for the wolf. I mean, the wolf would be dead, so that's not going to help the wolf very much. And if you care about all of God's creation, then you would still want the wolf to live. But by killing him, that would end the problem of him killing the sheep. But there's another option the shepherd could do, is he could take this wolf and keep him in the cage. Just lock up the wolf. Now, the wolf's behavior would be altered, right? No longer killing sheep, because now he's in a cage. But what would happen at the first opportunity, if the shepherd wasn't paying attention and the gate door was open, the wolf would probably run away, right? And he would continue his sheep-killing ways. But while locked up, while in this prison, his behavior would be modified, but the wolf would still have desires to eat sheep. His desires wouldn't change just because now he's locked up. That is religion. That is what religion does to people. It puts up boundaries and barriers, and it's like a cage where people's behavior is somewhat modified. They might act better because they're locked in by the religion and the requirements of that religion and the social expectations that come from being in a society with a major religion. And so the religion serves as a cage that modifies behavior and people act well, but their hearts still desire evil. And so what do they do? They go to a different country and act out and do things that are immoral, but they're not in the home country, and so then it's okay. But their hearts are still the same. There's a third option. Other than killing the wolf or locking him up and modifying his behavior, this third option only God can do. The work of the Holy Spirit alone can do this. But that would be God can take this wolf and change him into a sheep. Completely change his nature. And now that this wolf is no longer a wolf, and the wolf is now a sheep, he would love the shepherd. And he would follow the shepherd. And he would love the other sheep, because now he's also a sheep. And so what God does to people is not put up a cage and walls and say, modify your behavior and act better and look different on the outside. What God does is a total transformation where he takes a rebellious sinner who hates the shepherd and he radically changes that person's heart, their nature, so that now they love the shepherd and they love the other sheep and they want to follow and they're kind to other people because now their heart's been changed. A total cleansing that is actually a complete radical transformation of the person's heart. 
That is the power of the gospel. That is not the power of religion. This is what the gospel does. Complete and utter cleansing that results in a new heart with new desires and new motives and a yearning to follow the shepherd and the love for the sheep, the people of God. And so do you realize your need for a cleansing? Do you realize that you need a new heart? And if you're a follower of Jesus, the question is, are you following the shepherd and loving the sheep? You must yield to him in order for him to do this. Have you tasted God's love and mercy? Because that is the key to experiencing this. You focus on God who is faithful, and then he will change you, and you will be more faithful. So the first point here is focus on God's cleansing. Focus that he can change you. Second one is God's comfort. God's comfort. So cleansing and God's comfort. And you see that in verse 25, there was this man named Simeon, a righteous man, and it says that he was waiting for the consolation is the word used in verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the word consolation means comfort. That's what the word means. And so he was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for that day when God would come, send his anointed one, liberate them from their oppression, and they could then experience comfort. And he says now that he could die in peace, he could have comfort because he had seen, it says, God's salvation and this salvation was for all peoples, it says in verse 31. And so Jesus brings comfort and peace, but sadly, not everyone has it. Because in verse 34, it says that as he's speaking prophetically, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. And so some will fall and some will rise. And so some people will say, No, I don't want comfort in Jesus. I don't want it. I want comfort my own way, and others say, I do want to find my comfort in Jesus. Some will rise, some will fall. They'll reject the sign, what it says in verse 34. This sign is Jesus crucified. And even his mother would have her soul pierced. She would be at the cross. She would be in anguish seeing her son crucified for the salvation of the world. And some people are going to fall in the sense that they're going to reject and others will rise, that they will accept and receive the comfort only God can bring. And then verse 35 is significant. It says that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That the thoughts of hearts, what's hidden in our hearts, will be revealed. See, God knows your deepest longing. He knows your deepest desires. He knows what motivates you. He knows what you want most. The thoughts of your heart will be revealed. Jesus exposes us, and whatever is in there is what's going to be shown. See, whenever we're in pain, what we want most is soothing. We all all want this. When, When your soul is in anguish or when it's hurting, what you want to do is run to something that will soothe the pain. That's our first response. Kind of like me this week, I love pineapple. And I'm so foolish because I took this whole piece of pineapple, 
put the whole thing in my mouth. This is like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I did. Now, it's not a big, I got a big mouth. That's not a problem for me, you know, a big piece of pineapple. Except it was a bit too big and ended up biting my tongue because it was just too much in my mouth at once. But you don't understand. This was a tongue biting where I, there was a flap that was hanging off the side of my tongue. I, had just, I bit a hole through my tongue. And I was, ah, no big deal. And, but the next day, it was big. This is just a couple days ago. I was in so much pain, like the side of my face all hurt from this hole in my tongue that I was getting ice and just holding it up to my mouth just to numb the pain. But then my hand would get cold, so I had like these tongs holding the ice to my tongue just to numb this excruciating pain. And what I wanted was just the pain to be numbed, just go away. And it's not just on your tongue, it's on your soul. Our souls can be in pain. There can be things that just aren't right and that are hard, that are objectively challenging. And when there's a hole, not on your tongue like with me, but when there's a hole in your heart because life has bitten a chunk out of it and it hurts. Well, what you want is to soothe the pain. What you want is to take ice to numb the pain that is on your soul, on your heart. But the problem is it's not as easy as numbing your tongue to numb your soul is much harder. And so what do we do when we're in pain? Where do we go for comfort? Well, we do things like turn to our accomplishments. And guys turn to their work. Or, or women will turn sometimes to their family or their relationships. Or you will turn to other people. Or you will turn to food. Or you'll turn to shopping or pornography or whatever anything to just soothe and numb the pain that is inside and we turn to those things for comfort. The problem is that when we're running to those things for comfort, we are running away from Jesus, who is our consolation. He is our counselor. He alone can comfort us. Only God can comfort you in the deepest sense. What are you running to for comfort? Are you running away from Jesus for comfort? Because he alone can do it. He alone can give your soul the comfort that you want. Simeon knew this. Simeon knew he was fixed on the coming Messiah. And his old age, before he died, he saw him, this 40-day-old baby. And he knew, the Spirit revealed, because it's full of Spirit, this is our hope. Jesus is our comfort. So he knew where comfort came from, which is only through God. Do you know that? So we must focus on God's ability to cleanse us and God's ability to comfort us, but thirdly, on God's redemption. You see that in verses 20, I'm sorry, 36 through 38. There was this prophetess faithful lady named Anna. And it says that she was advancing years. She was 84 years old. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, prayer night and day. And it says in verse 38 that she was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, the, the first point is that we're, we focus on God who can cleanse us. Second one is God who can comfort us. Third one is God that can redeem us. I try to get a C word to have three C's, you know, 
comfort cleanse and then another C word. I failed you as a preacher only having two C's and the R, so I didn't alliterate very well. But it's in the Bible, so I guess you can't go wrong to use the biblical word. She uses the word redemption. And so we must focus on God who alone can redeem. She was constantly living in God's presence because she knew that she needed someone beyond herself outside to redeem her, to liberate her and all of God's people from slavery to sin, someone to come and pay the price so that we could be liberated. And in her old age, she saw Jesus, who is our Redeemer. Think of yourself spiritually as having chains when Jesus alone has the keys to unlock those chains and to give you freedom to change your so if you want to be faithful to God, focus on Jesus. Be fixated, be thrilled, be enthralled with him as the one who brings you cleansing, comfort, and redemption. Remember this, your feet will only follow where you're facing. And so whatever it is that has your focus will define the direction of your life. And so are you meditating on Jesus? Is your heart spending time with him? Are we truly spending time reading his word and thinking on it and meditating on it and enjoying him and having our hearts just gripped and overflowed by him so that the natural result is faithfulness? And you see in verse 39, that Jesus' earthly parents did everything that the law required. They were following God's word. They were faithful. Why? Why were Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, these examples of people, why were they also faithful? They're focusing on God. Their, their focus, their gaze was on God's faithfulness, and that created in them faithfulness. Focus on your abilities, you won't get very far. You focus on who God is, and you will get very far. And indeed, God is faithful to you and me. We can trust him. And so as we conclude this year, if you are a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you, as we had in our prayer time earlier, to reflect and re-examine how we've been following him. I'm not huge in the year's resolutions. I don't think they work. They don't tend to go deep enough. They tend to be very surface. But we focus on Christ's faithfulness and our hearts will be changed. But maybe you're here today and you don't know God's faithfulness. Maybe you never have given your life to him and said, I will follow you. Maybe you don't believe that you're a sinner who even needs a savior. I would encourage you to keep knocking, keep seeking. Because the truth is that Jesus wants to save you. He wants you to experience joy and forgiveness he wants you to experience his cleansing, his comfort, and his redemption, which will give you absolute joy that is inexplicable. You have to experience it for yourself. All I can tell you is if you will repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, he will change your heart, and you will have this joy we've been talking about this Christmas season. Will you please pray with me? Father, we know that you are so good to us. 
we who are undeserving, we praise you for your salvation that you've given to us. We thank you that you are gracious to us and we don't deserve your love, but you have so freely given it to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful Christmas season where we have remembered and celebrated that you sent your son for us. We thank you for this faith family. We thank you for all of our guests that have joined us this morning as we worship you. Father, we pray as we conclude this year in a few days that we would focus on your faithfulness and that you would create in us a heart that is faithful to you and that in turn loves the other sheep. I pray for anyone in this room that is grappling with these truths and is unsure of what they believe. I pray that your spirit would be manifested in their life, that they would hear you calling their name, for indeed you are calling that they would repent and turn to you, put complete trust in you as their Savior. Father, we praise you for who you are and for what you have done in our lives. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus.